reading from Joshua chapter 6, verses 1 to 9. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you should march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark, while the trumpets blew continually. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We all know this story, so I'm not going to talk about the story of the walls of Jericho falling down at great length this morning. We're familiar with it. We've heard it preached. We've heard it in Sunday school and VBS and so many other places. Um, some versions are probably considerably more accurate than some other versions. If you've you know, grown up on the VeggieTales version of it, I apologize. That's not a particularly accurate version, but it does kind of communicate a message, and that's okay, I guess. But I'd like us to just sort of get into the space where we're thinking about what this must have been like for the people who were inside the city of Jericho, who are shut in. They're not going out, they're not coming in. The city is completely locked down. And then one day, this army approaches the city. Now, they've already seen the nations of Canaan were in fear at this point because they had seen how when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth went down to the Jordan River, the Jordan stopped flowing. And the people of Israel were able to pass over on dry ground. And now in this one battle, and I think, I could be wrong, but I think that this is the only time this happened where God commanded that the Ark go up along with the soldiers as part of the process of reducing the walls of Jericho. So the people are already afraid of this God, the Lord of the heaven and earth, who's symbolized in the presence of this Ark of the Covenant. Now they see the priests bearing that Ark and the soldiers of Israel come up and they walk around the city on that first day and the trumpets are playing, but no one is talking. The army is marching, no one's calling a cadence, there's no banter between the various troops, there's nothing of that, it's just silence among the people. How strange and frightening that must have been. And they do this six days in a row, and then on the seventh day, they come up and they do this seven times. 
And as they near the end of that seventh circuit of the city, the priests who are blowing the trumpets begin to blow louder and they make one long tone. And then finally, after a full week, the armies of the people of Israel shout. And as they shout, the walls came tumbling down. Because Joshua had said, or the Lord had said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout and the wall of the city will fall down flat and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So the idea is not as you may have seen in movies that show battles in ancient times where they make a breach in the wall and then all the soldiers proceed to go through that breach and the people can defend on the other side and it becomes kind of a bottleneck where there's terrible violence. In this case, the walls of Jericho fall and everybody in whatever position they are in around that city is able to go straight up over those walls and into the city to do the work that God had appointed for them. Well, what we just read is what God promised, and this, according to Joshua 6, verse 20, is exactly what happened. Now, there have been other explanations offered by people who don't accept the idea that the Lord of all the earth could just make walls come a-tumbling down by the power of his might. One author on a website suggests, while the city of Jericho was real, many historians believe this story was far stranger than many people first realize. I, I don't think so. The city was actually in an area that would have been prone to earthquake activity. With armies using up nearby waters during a siege, it could increase the risk. Some historians would say that the army got lucky or that someone knew that earthquake activity in the area and hoped to use it to their advantage. Believers, he says, would suggest that perhaps God chose that moment to activate an earthquake along that particular fault line. No one will ever know. But Hebrews 11 Verse 30 gives us further insight. It says this, By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. And faith, according to the writer to the Hebrews, is the assurance. It's the hypostasis in Greek. It's the reality that underlines what underlies what we see. It's the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen, which means that true believers would do more than suggest that there was the miracle of a well-timed earthquake. Believers approach Scripture as the proof, the evidence of things not seen. Believers believe the word of God simply because it is the word of God. When God speaks, we ought to listen, we ought to believe, we ought to obey. 
Lord's Day 7 of the Heidelberg Catechism says this very thing in answer to the question, what is true faith? And I want you to pay careful attention. I'm going to put it up on the screen. But there are two parts to this answer, and often it seems that people get sort of nailed down on one part and forget the other part. So first of all, we are taught true faith is not only a knowledge and conviction that everything God reveals in his word is true. So before I go on, I want to be clear. When it says faith is not only that, it is saying that faith is unquestionably that. True faith is a knowledge and conviction that everything God reveals in his word is true. That doesn't mean that any one of us know everything that God has revealed in his word, but it does mean that when we come to the word in true faith, we come believing that whatever is in there, whatever God said, that's the truth. That's reality, and that's how we need to guide our lives. Because when something is not only one thing, but also something else, it's still very much the one thing. So true faith is not only a knowledge and conviction that everything God reveals in his word is true. It is that, but it is also, in addition to that, a deep-rooted assurance created in me by the Holy Spirit through the gospel that out of sheer grace earned for us by Christ, not only others, but I too have had my sins forgiven, have been made forever right with God, and have been granted salvation. The Westminster Larger Catechism puts it this way, justifying faith is a saving grace wrought or worked in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and Word of God. So the Holy Spirit takes the Word of God, and as we hear it, whether we're reading it or listening to it as it is preached or in some other means, as we hear it, the Holy Spirit works in our heart through the word of the gospel, creating faith and repentance in that place. And convinced of our sin and misery, Westminster goes on, and of the disability in ourselves and all other creatures to recover ourselves out of our lost condition, we not only assent to the truth of the promise of the gospel, but we receive and rest upon Christ and his righteousness held there forth for pardon of sin and for the accepting and accounting of his person righteous in the sight of God for salvation. So the Holy Spirit uses the word to create faith so that we can trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and understand that he alone and his atoning death alone is the ground for our salvation. And then having convinced us of that and created faith and repentance in us, he founds our lives upon the word of God. True faith is a knowledge and assurance that everything God reveals in his word is true. Because if not everything that God reveals in his word is true, then how would we know that the part where Jesus actually saved us from our sin is true? This is the faith that we profess, 
This is the faith by which we are saved. True faith is both of these things together and neither one alone. It's not enough to say, well, I believe everything in God's word is true, but not believe that Jesus died for your sin or that you had any sin that needed to be died for. And it's not enough to say, well, I believe that Jesus died for my sin and I'm going to be okay and I'm going to go to heaven in the end, but the rest of the Bible, I pretty much don't need. It's both of those things. True faith believes God's word because it is God's word, and the Holy Spirit uses that conviction, which, by the way, comes from him to begin with. He's the one who creates that conviction, and out of it creates a deep-rooted assurance within us that we have had our sins forgiven, that we have been made forever right with God and have been granted salvation out of sheer grace earned for us by Christ. All of those things you learn only in the word of God. Without the scriptures, we could not know that our sins have been forgiven and we have been made forever right with him. It's only through the scriptures as the Spirit gives us insight into those that we come to understand it. These are things that we learn from the word and this is the faith, which is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. According to the writer of the Hebrews, this is also the faith that brought down the walls of Jericho. In Hebrews 11, verse 30, we're told that by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down, but only after they had been encircled for seven days. We read about it at the beginning. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of the day, and they marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. So the people shouted. He told them to march, they marched. He told them to shout, they shouted. He told them these things because that's what God had told him. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown and the wall fell down flat so that the people of God went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. That had been the promise of God and God always keeps his promises. So it's by faith. Yes, but faith is not some invisible force or power that we have within ourselves. For those of you who are from my generation or had parents who were, this is not like Luke Skywalker reaching out with his feelings and using the power of his mind to raise his spaceship up out of the swamp. The warriors of Israel were not told, go and sit in a circle around the city and meditate, and as you meditate, focus the power of your faith on those walls until you see cracks begin to develop. Biblical faith is nothing at all like that. In fact, true faith, because it is a knowledge and conviction that everything God reveals in his word is true, 
is demonstrated by the obedience of the believer to the word of God. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice. God had spoken, had revealed himself to Abel, so Abel did what God told him to do. By faith, Noah, in reverent fear, constructed an ark. God came to him and said, I'm about to destroy everything on the face of the earth in whose nostrils is the breath of life, so build an ark and I will bring the animals to you so that they can be saved by your obedience. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive his inheritance. God came to him and said, Abraham, I want you to go somewhere, get up and leave your father's house, leave behind the, the family connections that you have in this place and go, and when you get there, I'll let you know that you have arrived. And we're not told that Abraham argued with God or asked for a map or some evidence of what was going on. He just obeyed and went. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the prince of Egypt, the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And here's one of those interesting moments in New Covenant Scripture where we find out about the continuity between the Old and the New Covenant. He, Moses, considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to the reward. God said, Moses... Go back and lead my people out of Egypt, and he did. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. See what's happening? I, I, I could spend a lot more time just going through the whole of Hebrews chapter 11, but see what's happening here? Time and time and time again, God speaks or spoke to his people and when his people believed him, when they trusted that the word that he was speaking was true, they obeyed that word. Because obedience really is the very best way to show that you believe. That's what faith does. So when he said to Joshua, you shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once, thus you shall do for six days, and on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, that's what they did. They did it because God said, if you do this, then the walls are going to fall down and I am going to give this city and its king and all of its mighty men of valor into your hand. So because Joshua and the people of Israel believed the promise of God, what did they do? They did as he commanded. And so by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. So in the sermon this morning, and in the catechism class after, and in the Bible study this evening, we are talking about true faith. And we're talking about true faith in all of these places because really this is a matter of eternal life and death. You know this, for by grace are ye saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. 
you are saved by true faith. It is a deep-rooted assurance created in me by the Holy Spirit through the gospel that out of sheer grace earned for us by Christ, not only others, not only in some general sense, but I too have had my sins forgiven and have been made forever right with God and have been granted salvation. Because if we believe what God says, it brings us to that place where God says your hope of salvation is found in Christ alone. He became sin. He who knew no sin that you by faith might become the righteousness of God in him. And you believe it because it is also a knowledge and conviction that everything God reveals in his word is true, which is to say that after the Holy Spirit has created true faith within us by the word of the gospel, true faith then looks like obedience to that gospel. Now, if that sounds odd, you should read a little more carefully in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 or Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about the obedience of faith. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, he says that Christ is eventually going to come back to judge those who have not obeyed the gospel. So true faith, after the Holy Spirit has created it there within us, leads inevitably to obedience to God. We've seen it all through Hebrews 11. We see it in James 2, where James said, if someone says, I have faith, but I don't have works, then what good is that faith? We see it in the words of Jesus himself. In Matthew chapter 7, he said, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, so he's talking about people who have heard but are not putting into practice his word, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. The old Puritan commentator Matthew Henry wrote, it is putting a cheat on ourselves. If we think that a bare profession of religion will save us, that we're saved by simply saying, well, yeah, sure, Christianity's probably as good as any other religion, that hearing the sayings of Christ will bring us to heaven without doing them. It's a cheat. It's not true. It's a false hope. And the examples we've seen in Hebrews are the proof. By faith, in other words, in, through, and because of faith, when these saints of Scripture were called by God to act, they obeyed. They simply acted because that's what saving faith is and that's what saving faith does. True faith, saving faith, a kind of faith that pleases God is created in us as a gift of his grace so that we can walk in the good works which he prepared beforehand for us to do. We talked about that last Sunday. That's the point. It's why God has saved us. 
to do those good works which he has prepared beforehand or has before ordained for us to do. True faith, saving faith, the kind of faith that pleases God, responds to the call of God in an obedience that's born of trust. So when we hear God's word saying, call upon me, we call upon him. When we hear God's word saying that salvation consists in professing with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord, which of course it consists in not only professing that, but living it, then we profess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord. When God calls us to act, we act. When God commands us, we obey. Because true faith, the kind of faith that pleases God, can be confessed in terms of a creed. It's true faith if we stand together and we say sincerely from the heart, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, and in the Holy Spirit and in the Holy Church. If we profess that, believing it, then that's an act of profession. It's an act of true faith. But true faith can't be contained in a profession. It's not enough to say, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, and then go out and not let the Lordship of Jesus Christ actually change the way that we live in the world. It's not enough to say Jesus is Lord. We need to say it because he commands it. But when we say it, we need to believe it in such a way that we will act upon it because faith cannot be contained in a profession. Are we saved by faith alone then? Absolutely. Now and always, world without end. We are saved by grace through faith, not works. But as someone once said, we are saved by faith that works. I think that someone was James, the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are saved by the kind of faith that comes as a gift of God, enabling us time and again to hear God's call on our lives and to respond in the obedience that is born of trust. Because not only is obedience the very best way to show that you believe, it is in fact the only way to show that you believe. The Lutheran pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote, happy are the simple followers of Jesus Christ who have been overcome by his grace and are able to sing the praises of the all-sufficient grace of Christ with humbleness of heart. Happy are they who know that discipleship following Jesus simply means the life that springs from grace and that grace simply means discipleship. Grace means following, obeying, worshiping Jesus. Happy are they who have become Christians in this sense of the word for them. The word of grace has proved a fount of mercy. May we pray. Father, give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to the church. 
And Father, give us minds that understand and hearts that are ready to put into practice your word, your commands. That, Father, we may live as your people in this world, bringing glory and praise to the holy name of Jesus Christ by which we are saved and in which we pray. Amen.